and parents and children, we've all been children, uh, we all know this, right? We as children hang, we have hung onto every single word our parents have said, every word of their promise. And if it's a big promise, well, you know, parents better be careful because if we don't come through, then every single one of those words that have failed will forever be a reminder in our children's minds of our own forgetfulness. Well, you know, that's not so bad. Our inability getting worse and our character. Of course, this happens with anyone, not just kids. It happens with loved ones, etc. And then if these things keep happening, just imagine over and over and over again. Some of you guys know what this is like as you've seen promises made, perhaps in your parents, and promises not kept. You know that if this happens over and over and over again, some people go so far as to whether we should even trust the promise giver. Well, in today's passage, we begin to look at God's rock-solid promise of salvation to everyone and anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. God is always faithful to His promises. That's the main point for today. God is always faithful to His promises. And we continue our series in the book of Romans. I invite you to turn there with me now. We are in Romans chapter 9. Last week, Oscar preached on Jonah. Uh, We're going to go back to Jonah later on in the month of July. But for the next three weeks, this week included, we are in Romans chapter 9. Our passage this morning is Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. If you're using one of those black Bibles right there in front of you, you can be found on page 945. Our passage today marks the beginning of a new section of the letter to the Roman Christians. And Paul addresses in in these chapters... In more detail, God's plan of salvation for everyone who calls upon his name, whether they be Jewish folks or non-Jews or Gentiles or Greeks, as the New Testament refers to us. And as far as I know, we all here today are Gentiles. We are non-Jews. And this is hugely important, God's plan of salvation to everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, whether they be Jewish background or other types of background, because that's us, right? So as we look at these chapters, which oftentimes deal with a lot of Old Testament history and things like this, uh, this concerns us. We are non-Jewish, whether we come from Latino background or Asian or Anglo or African American. This is us. It concerns God's big picture plan to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth to gather for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who will worship and bow the knee, giving praises to Jesus Christ. It is not just a certain group of ethnic Jews who worship Jesus. God says in Romans 10, verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So in Romans chapters 9 to 11, here Paul goes big picture in talking to us about God's salvation plan unfolded from Genesis all the way to the last book, that is Revelation. And to give you guys some context here, in the last few chapters that we've been looking at in the book of Romans, chapters 5 to 8, Paul Paul speaks of some great, he gives us great hope and great confidence in all that Jesus Christ will do for us if we've believed. And the section there, uh, the section, chapters 5 to 8, ends in some really magnificent promises, securing our hope in Jesus Christ. He says there's absolutely nothing, nothing, can stop God from glorifying his people in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. And then he says, given Christ is the king, absolutely no one can oppose him. Verses 31 to 34. And then he says, absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Verses 35 to 39. I mean, those are huge promises for you, Christian, if you've turned from your sin and believed upon him. All Because he loves you, here this security is held out for you, Christian. This is supposed to, once again, help us embrace the promises of Jesus Christ. Salvation to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. But this actually brings up the problem, doesn't it? If you know anything about biblical history or ancient history, you know that right there, salvation to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile, there is a problem, apparently. I mean, if you turn over to Romans chapter 1, go ahead and look there. 
Romans chapter 1. He says, therefore, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There's a problem there. What is this problem? Obviously, the Jews didn't get along so well with Christ, did they? The Jews didn't get along well. The ancient Jews didn't get along well with Christ and his Christians. Christ and his followers. In fact, they crucified Jesus Christ. They persecuted the disciples. And in this situation that Paul is writing into in the middle of the 60s AD, they knew persecution against Christians. Something is wrong. There is rank unbelief among the Jews. So what exactly does he mean? What exactly does Paul mean? God, as this is his promise, that the promise of salvation goes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. This is really what we explore this morning as we begin to explore from Romans chapter 9 all the way through Romans chapter 11. Now let me prepare you guys. Uh, Romans chapter 9 can be quite hard to hear. Romans chapter 9 can be quite hard to hear, but not because Paul is illogical. Actually, according to Romans chapter 9, he's actually very logical. I mean, you have these statements, these conclusions that are assumed, and then he lays out the truth. And then you actually see, if you just look there, uh, verse 6, but it is not as though God's word, the word of God has failed, right? He's addressing something. He's, he's, he's addressing an anticipated objection. And then you look there in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? He's anticipating that we all would think God is unjust, and so he answers. And then he says there in 19, well, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? So he's anticipating that we would wonder these things and we would ask these types of questions. And then he goes on and gives us the answer. So he's actually very logical. Paul is very sharp, trained in the law. When I say that it's hard to hear, I mean that Paul's points, God's points in Scripture, as the Spirit is the one who carried along Paul to produce God's Word, Paul's points can really cut across the grain of what we think God should be and should do. That's why it's hard to hear, because <laughs> we are not God. It's hard to hear. Once again, it cuts across the grain of what we think God should do, he should be, and what he should do. So I pray that as we look at this chapter, I pray that we have the humility to hear the answers that Paul gives, and we would really seek to conform our minds and hearts to what God Almighty has said rather than play God and sit in judgment over God and His purposes. I'll go ahead and read Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness, bears me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let's just continue reading uh, the next handful of verses. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. 
So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. We get into point number one here. Will God be faithful to his promises? Will God be faithful to his promises? You know, once again, we are getting back to the problem, which is a widespread rejection of the ancient Jews, the ancient Israelites of Jesus Christ, the first century Jews and Israelites of Jesus Christ. And so the question then is, if salvation is to the Jew first and then to us, as we are all non-Jews, what do we make of him, God, saying that, He's going to save the Jews. Has God's promises failed? Again, this is ultra practical, right? I know we're getting into history. We're talking about first century Jews and how that relates to us as non-Jews. But this is ultra practical, friends. If God's word failed, then we should all be wondering, why would we even believe in him? If he cannot do what he says, why believe in him? Because actually that would then go against all of God's word because it says that God's word doesn't fail, as the passage that Jay read to us this morning says, right? If God's word failed, then we would have absolutely zero confidence in the claim that God will give us all things along with Jesus Christ for salvation and sanctification. You guys realize that if God's word failed, then we would have no confidence in the claim that God brings us before his throne in righteousness? If God's word had failed, we would have no confidence in the claim that God will bring us all the way home to final salvation, to glorification, to heaven, where we will see Jesus face to face. All of those things, friends, would be empty words. Similar to what Paul says, if Jesus did not get up from the grave, we would be absolute fools. So what do we make of the Jews and their unbelief and their hostility to God? We know what Paul thought of it. Look there at verses 1 to 3. He says there, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in my Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, in relation to that last bit there, um, verse number three, he's not really praying that God would condemn him. He's not really, his, his, his expressed wish here, right? He says, I could wish these things. This is not re- revealing or reflecting anything in the Bible that says that God will actually take some that he has saved, that he has paid for, for their salvation through his son's blood, and then go on and condemn them anyways, even if we could somehow make a wager with God. That's not what he's saying here. It's just a rhetorical comment that expresses the, the real anguish and the sorrow that he had for his people. He says a bunch of stuff there in terms of verse 1, but it leads up to great sorrow in verse 2. Unceasing anguish in my heart. And it's all because of their unbelief. His heart aches because his own people, his own flesh, reject Jesus Christ. Look there at 10.1. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. That is the Israelites, the ethnic Israelites. Now, you guys, I'm sure, know something of what this is like. You might so desperately want to see uh, your friends and your family saved, to know the saving grace of God who can free all, everyone who calls on his name. Right? That's, That's a wonderful thing. Paul knows what that is like as he desperately wants the same for his ethnic people. His heart is moved to sorrow and then to desire, and then it even leads him to pray. Friends, it's interesting to know here, important to note, that even though Paul knows that God is sovereign in salvation, right? We're going to talk about election. He knows that God is sovereign in salvation, but yet it doesn't stop him from emoting. You see that there? He's not a stoic sort of resigned to God's unknown, unrevealed will, whatever. God's going to do whatever he wants to, so I don't need to feel. I don't need to pray. I don't need to evangelize. I don't need to feel sorrow. No, it's just plain and simple. He sees that there are lost people who reject Jesus and his heart is in anguish. He prays that the sovereign Lord would save them, even though he believes in God's sovereignty and salvation. 
Regarding this sorrow, there was in fact much to be sorrowful over. And the reason why he's filled with such sorrow over the rejection of Jesus Christ is stated there in the verses. It's, well, look there, because there in verse 4, they are Israelites. The term Israelites, right, right there, that speaks with it, that carries with it so much meaning, is pregnant with meaning. And you see the tragic irony that brings so much sorrow in the verse there. Though they are Israelites, God's Old Testament people, still they crucified God's Messiah. Tragic irony, right? They crucified Jesus Christ. They had so much and therefore they missed so much. Look at verse verse 4. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. How do we understand all this list here? If you want to think about it uh, more carefully, you see that there are two parallel lists. Two parallel lists. If you want to think about it more carefully, just think here. Write this down. As we walk through the list, he speaks first of the adoption, the glory, the covenants. And then he goes to the next three. The law, the worship, and the promises. All these things are the Israelites. These are the God-given privileges. And actually, if you've written them down, if you have adoption, glory, and the covenants, the law, the worship, and the promises, they come in pairs, right? They come in pairs, and they go together. The first pair you have here is the adoption and then the giving of the law. Those two things actually carries with it. It it, it causes us to, to be mindful of Genesis and then Exodus. There in Genesis, God adopted, right? He draws near to Abraham, a pagan man out of a pagan land, and God draws near to him out of his grace. Why does he choose Abraham? Simply because of his grace. He didn't deserve it. <clears throat> but nevertheless, God adopted Abraham. And then as the story goes, we know that the promises went to Abraham. We're going to talk more about the promises there. But God promised him that many would come from his line and they would be formed into a nation by God's grace. And then that happens in Exodus. Right? God calls Israel out of Egypt. Israel is his son. And then he gives them the law by which they are to live out and so display the beauty, the holiness, the righteousness of God to the pagan nations. All of that by God's grace. God enters into a covenant with them. That's, what's, that's what is referred to when it speaks of the adoption and then the law. The second pair, you look there, the glory and the worship. The glory and the worship. The people were to display God's glory, Right? His holiness is righteous to the people. But God revealed to them his glory. And he did that through their worship. You think about, you know, if you know the Old Testament history, you know that God had chosen to reveal himself, to make his presence known in the tent. First it was a tent, and then it was a a little bit better of a structure. And then it was the tabernacle, and then eventually it became the temple. And it was there that God met with his people, reminded them that forgiveness is all of grace through the sacrifice of blood. They had the glory. They possessed the worship by which a holy God drew near to them. And they had the covenants, the last pair, the covenants and the promise. Out of everybody, out of everybody on the world, in the world, God had chosen to give his covenant promises to them, which ultimately culminated in Jesus Christ, that one from their line would be a blessing to the world. So if you're here and you know yourself to be a Christian, you are evidence that God has fulfilled his promises. It is to Latinos that salvation by grace goes to them. Asians, salvation by grace. Anglos, whoever would repent of their sins and believe. In the Old Testament, though, it was the Hebrew people. It was the Israelites that God had given the covenant promises to that one day would spread out to the ends of the world. See, they had so much history with God. They had their God-given leaders, the patriarchs, as the verse says there, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But here's the tragic irony. Though they had so much history with God, such revelation from God, such promises of God, they still crucified God, the Son. They killed the Messiah, where they were supposed to know sonship in the spirit of the Son. They killed the Son. Where they were supposed to see and behold the glory of God in Jesus Christ. They snuffed out the light of the world. And where the promises were supposed supposed to point them to the deliverer, that is Jesus Christ, they only 
pointed blame at Jesus Christ. They missed it, right? That's the tragic irony here. They missed it. They refused to acknowledge it, in fact. They refused to acknowledge it in their sin. And even though one from their own ethnic line was the Savior of the world, the Messiah, God's chosen one to save, they crushed him. What does Paul call him? In 9.5, Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. This is why he has so much sorrow for his own ethnic people. Verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for Christ, from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They were given so much, and now so much will be demanded for, from them, and, and Paul wants them to be saved. They were given so much, which makes their rejection of Christ all the worse. So with the Jews' unbelief and outright rejection of God's plan in Christ, is salvation really to the Jew first? Is God faithful to his promises? Point number two, the answer is yes, because God's word never fails. The answer is yes, this is point number two, because God's word never fails. Now, Paul knows this is a perceived issue, so he answers this unstated issue there in verse six. He says there, But it is not as though the word of God had failed, right? He knows what people are thinking. So he answers the question. It is not as though the word of God had failed. It's as if he says, yes, friends, I know that there is rank unbelief amongst the Jews. But God's word never fails. And for the rest of our passage here, Paul just gives the answer as to why he knows. What's the evidence that God's word has not failed? The simple answer is because not all Israel is Israel. He's instructing here a lot of the Roman Christians. They're learning. And so he says, look, God's word is true. It never fails. Not all Israel is Israel. And a summary here is that God never promised to save every single ethnic Jew or every single ancient Israelite. He says plainly there, for not, look in scripture right there, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That's what it says there in verse 6. Verse 7, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Now read their physical offspring. You see the point he's making there, right? Simple, not all who are descendants of Israel physically belong to Israel spiritually. Just because you are part of the ethnic nation of Israel does not mean one is necessarily saved. The Israelites themselves were aware of this. Like they themselves had this category. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, Moses tells Israel, right before they're going to go into the promised land, circumcise your hearts. Okay, some of you guys who are new to Christianity, all of a sudden you're hearing the word circumcision. That sounds a little bit weird. What he's referring to there is the fact that God had drawn near to Abraham and he gave them a sign. God had given Abraham a sign of his covenant promises. They were, he was to be circumcised. He was to be marked off ethnically, right? His physical member was to be marked off and all of the physical people of Israel were to be marked off as well. But even though they are circumcised and they are part of Israel, it doesn't mean that they are part of the spiritual people of God. So Moses says, circumcise your hearts. And even in the prophets, it speaks of the day will come when all of God's people's hearts would be circumcised or cut off or set apart for God. In the New Testament, you know what Paul calls the true people of God? Galatians chapter 6, he calls them the Israel of God. Interesting, because he's including Gentiles in there, and he calls them the Israel of God, the true spiritual people of God. So when it comes to Romans 9 to 11, as we sort of are giving this sort of intro sermon here, Paul, it's helpful to know that Paul uses this distinction between merely the national Israelites and then the true spiritual people of God, the true spiritual Israel. And context is key. You know, if you just read through this, I encourage you to read this this afternoon. Just read Romans chapter 9 to, 13, 9 to 11, and you'll see him using these, this term Israel. And context is key when it comes to how do I know he's using one to refer to the physical versus the spiritual. All right, let's look at this explanation here. Verses 6 to 13, Paul makes the distinction clear, right? Just because you are of Israel doesn't mean one is actually saved. In these verses, Paul shows that even though the vast majority of Jews did not believe in God, nevertheless, God's word never failed. Here he shows us why. He tells us that not all Israel is Israel by using two examples. Uh, if you want to 
just here's a structure helpful to get our minds around it. In verses 7 to 9, he talks about Israel's physical children. Or sorry, Abraham's physical children. And then in verses 10 to 13, he speaks about Isaac's physical children. Right? He's just saying not all physical Israel, physical descendants of Abraham, are actually children of Abraham. Um, let's, let's look first at Abraham's kids, okay? Abraham's kids, verses 7 to 9. I'll go ahead and uh, read this right here. And then I'll give background. So he says, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but, quote, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, close quote. He says, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children, but, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Okay, if you've forgotten some biblical history, it's okay. Here's the background story. In the book of Genesis, it is recorded there that God drew near to Abraham and told Abraham and Sarah that they, that Sarah in particular, would have a son in due time, right? So they got to wait on God's timing and stuff like that. So they get tired, though. They get tired of waiting on God's timing. They get tired of trying, and so what does Sarah and Abraham do? Well, they decide that hey, it's going to be good. Even though God told Sarah, you, my wife, that you're going to have a child, let's go ahead and try and have a child through my maidservant, Hagar. They actually think that's a good idea. And so they actually, Abraham and Hagar, have a child, and that child is named Ishmael. Even though Abraham and Sarah mess up, God nevertheless drew near to them again, confirming his promises of a child through Sarah. And he says there, Sarah shall have a son. And eventually, his name is Isaac. They name him Isaac. But here's the deal. Which child did God draw near to and set his pro saving promises on? It's not Ishmael. It is Isaac. And this is a quotation right here from Genesis 21, verse 12. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. His promise is not that Ishmael would be saved along with Isaac. It is only through Isaac shall your offspring be called or named the true spiritual saved. Why did God's word not fail? It's because that's what God promised. Through Isaac shall you have, through Sarah shall you have a child. The point, okay, the point. Not all who are descendants of Abraham are automatically and individually saved. Simple Ishmael was not part of the covenant promises of God, and he was not saved. Isaac was. What's the conclusion? Verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. God had chosen to bring his saving promises to Sarah and her son Isaac. That's what it says in verse 9. And then the next example, right there, after looking at Abraham's children, Isaac and Ishmael, he then looks at Isaac's children with Rebekah. This is verses 10 through 13. And the story there, I'll, read, I'll give you the background before I read the, the verses there. Um, Isaac and Rebekah have two children, and they have twins, right? And he's going to say the same thing. But actually, he gets a lot more specific. He gets a lot more specific. I'll go ahead and read it and talk about how it is more specific. Look there, verse 10. He says, and not only so, second example, guys. But also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Here's how he gets specific, more specific than the Abraham example. Right, some of us already are thinking like, okay, you know, he's, in the Abraham example, he's still talking about how God's going to develop his nation, a national Israel. Um, but here, or in that Abraham example, you might think like, and besides that, uh, you know, you have this Hagar wife, right? She's, she's sort of like uh, neglected anyway, so let's just go ahead and neglect her. He's concentrated on building a national Israel. They have two mothers. But here, look, they have the same mother and the same father. That's his point here. Same mother, same father, more specific. Even though they had twins, one was chosen and then the other was not. That's what it says there. 
It's clear, one was chosen and not the other. The point again is that not all who are physically descended of Abraham or physically descended of Isaac are the true spiritual people of God. One can be of the blood, but still not of the promise. One can be of the seed, but not saved. Not all descended from Israel belong to spiritual Israel. Right? And he's talking about this because God's word had not failed. Did you notice he uses quotation after quotation, wanting us all to be so confident in the fact that, yes, God is faithful to his promises. That's why he's talking about this here. This concept of election, this concept that God graciously sets his salvation on some and not all, this is kind of a hot-button issue obviously needs to be addressed. We, we heard of this general concept of God setting his love upon some in Romans eight twenty nine. right? Look, go ahead and look there. It says, for those whom God foreknew, he's not talking about merely, I know in the future what someone's going to do. Foreknowledge talks about God setting his love upon a people, like a husband does to a wife. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. Those are things, according to the Bible, take place before the creation of the world. And those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Called and justified. Those are things that actually take place in this created world. And then he goes on to say, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Of course, glorification takes place in the future. It no doubt is certain. So he speaks of it in the past tense there. But you see there this concept of God setting his love upon a people. And all that he promises, he certainly will finish. And it's supposed to encourage us, right? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption. He goes on in Ephesians chapter 1 and says that we even have a seal that secures us until final salvation. So according to Paul, Ephesians chapter 1, God's election for his people, of his people, is reason for praise and thanksgiving. You can see in 1 Thessalonians, right, when he speaks about God's chosen people, he speaks about it because they're being persecuted, and it's meant to encourage the church. They are chosen. God will not neglect them. In our passage today, election is a reason for confidence in God's word. Knowing that all that God purposes himself to do, all that he promises, he will accomplish by his sovereign grace. God's word never fails. That's confidence right there. God's sovereign grace and mercy to save, to sanctify, to glorify in the fulfillment of all of his promises. It's confidence, right, Christian? In the love of God before the foundation of the world, he knew you. And in the present, he knows us and he sees us all the way home. But let's be honest. Many of us, myself included, you know, when we come across the thought of God electing and choosing some unto salvation by his sovereign grace and mercy can trouble our hearts and minds for different reasons. And frankly, some of us try and rationalize it away. Some of you maybe even right here right now, as I know from my own experience, sort of have this gut reaction of anger towards this concept, I know I did at one point in time, had anger towards this concept that I didn't really know too much about as I never studied Romans chapter 9 before and other passages of Scripture that spoke on it. And, and here we hear the words of God's election, the older will serve the younger, and he chooses one and not the other, and we get angry. We get disturbed. We think, dude, God's word sucks. So incredibly different from why God, Paul is talking about election, isn't it? If, God, if Paul is speaking about election so that our hearts would be secure in the salvation to the ends of the earth for all who call upon the name of the Lord, and we think, that sucks. Friend, something's wrong with your heart. We try and rationalize it away, God's sovereignty. We try and reason that away, God's mercy. We try and make different reasons for why that doesn't exist. One way in which we rationalize it is by thinking, oh, you know, he's not talking about individual salvation here, individuals being saved. He's talking about national Israel. He's just talking about the formation of a, of, a, of a nation here on earth. And we see there, right, we got Isaac and we got Jacob, meaning the nation. But that doesn't work here. 
he's actually talking about individual salvation. Of course, that implies group salvation, and then a group, of course, implies individuals who make up the group. But some people want to limit it to national salvation. It doesn't work here. Salvation, or I mean national formation, salvation is so clearly in his mind. Right? What does he desire? What is he praying to God for in chapter 10, verse 1? This is still part of the argument there. He says that he wishes that they may be saved. And then if you think back to Romans chapter 9, verse 2, and how, how much anguish he feels and how much sorrow he feels, right? Why does he wish that he would be cut off or condemned or anathematized? Because that's the opposite of salvation. We also know that the election of a national Israel is not in view because if you look there in 9, 23, and 24, Paul speaks about drawing some from ethnic Israel, right? He's talking about, here's ethnic Israel, and he says, look, in 924, he's talking about God drawing some from them. Then he goes on talking about drawing some from the Gentiles. Furthermore, Paul says to the ones who are saved, he calls them children of God. Verse 8, this means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise. In the New Testament, children of God always designates those who are saved. We know he's talking about individual salvation here. Another way we try and rationalize God's mercy, his sovereign mercy and grace away, is by saying, well, if God is going to choose someone to salvation, it isn't by his sovereign grace and mercy. It is according to our work, right? That makes me feel a little bit better. But we know that it's not that either. Look there at verse 11. When, when did God choose Jacob? He makes a point there. He says, before they were born. And of course, this concept of salvation by work, that itself would cut across everything that Paul has been saying in the book of Romans. Paul has been writing in the book of Romans that one is not saved by works of the law, but by grace through faith in Christ Jesus alone. So if we read through Romans and all of a sudden Romans 9, we claim to all we're saved by works. That just doesn't make sense. So why did God do what he did, electing Jacob unto salvation? Look there in verses 12 and 13. He says there, in order, the purpose is that God's purposes, his will of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And this word calls, think of the one who calls is also the one who creates and forms. For God to call, it means he forms something through his word. So friends, if you are a Christian, let me just say, I know that there are different reactions to this concept of election, but um, like me, I didn't want to even think about election as a Christian. I didn't, I didn't know what it, what it was, and to me it was kind of confusing, and I had imported so many different ideas of what election is and what election ought to be. But friends, here, number one, you have to have a doctrine of election because it's in the Bible. You have to. There's no option. Everybody has a doctrine of election. The question is, what will it be? Will it be according to Scripture is the question. And as we consider this doctrine of election, we have to put our minds and hearts toward understanding these things because God himself has spoken. But again, notice here, election is not spoken of as merely a philosophical category. That's not why God, that's not why Paul brings it up here. He does not bring it up as merely a philosophical category for us to determine and discuss and see whether or not it's biblical. He doesn't do that. He brings it up because he wants us to have confidence in the purposes of God and his word. He wants us to be encouraged to trust in God that salvation really does go out to the ends of the earth. I mean, remember, elsewhere in Scripture, Paul uses the doctrine of election to encourage, knowing that God loved us from the beginning of time, from before time. Election in Scripture leads to worship. It leads to praise. It leads to thanksgiving, all knowing that God's mercy has come to us. And that's why we should praise. Because God's mercy has come to us in the very first place. Right, so friends, if you find your heart and your minds getting sort of riled up for what you think God Almighty should do or should not have done, if you find your hearts and your minds sort of criticizing God's sovereign purposes, 
whether it be about us or whether it be about Abraham, whether it be about uh, Isaac or whether it be about Jacob. You find your minds and hearts criticizing God's sovereign purposes as if you are the sovereign. Friends, be really careful. Let me encourage you to guard your hearts. And you, as you ask the questions, I'm not saying you don't ask the questions. I'm saying you ask the questions. They're good questions. Paul asks the questions and he answers them. But I'm saying as you ask the questions, guard your hearts. You realize that if your hearts are criticizing God, you are not far from calling the sovereign and good Lord evil and criticizing his ways and judging his character. Now, again, let me be really clear. In many ways, it's entirely normal to ask questions that come from the statements that Paul is making. Entirely normal. That's why he's asking the questions, right? He's anticipating what we're going to ask, and then he's going to answer them. Right, So we find our own questions in Romans chapter 9. Given God elects some and not all, is there injustice on God's part? That's what it says in verse 14. And then if God does in fact sovereignly elect and have mercy, well, then why does he still find fault in sinners in verse 19? Right? These are all natural, normal questions that we all should be asking and studying and going to God's word for the answer. So what I'm getting at here is the heart where our hearts and souls are as we ask the question in relation to God. So friends, pray that your hearts rest under your Lord. You know how we can do that? How we can have our hearts rest or at least move towards wanting to rest under our sovereign Lord? It's by praising God that he would save any at all. By praising God that he would save any at all. One, one pastor puts it this way. He says that this idea of God's mercy, God not giving, God withholding something that we genuinely deserve, that is wrath, God withholding his wrath and instead bestowing his love. This idea of mercy, you know, we just kind of live with it. We're, we're Christians, we, we, yeah, we have the idea of grace and this mercy and the idea of a king and there, there is only one king and that those who rebel against him, you know, they deserve to uh, die for their treason, eternal punishment in hell. We just live, we just grow up with this in some ways, just grow up with this understanding of mercy. And it's kind of like, he said, electricity or water. Right? We expect the electricity to work. We expect there to be hot water. But if you go around the world, you know that hot water and electricity just doesn't exist all the time, or if it does, maybe only for a few hours. And so we've come to expect human, or sorry, God's mercy. We've come to think about God's mercy as a human right. That God owes man. And friends, that's what's so far from biblical truth. What is it that God owes rebels who have suppressed God and his truth, according to Romans chapter 1? What is it that God owes rebels who have exchanged his glory, the glory of the only creator, for the stuff of the creation? What is it that God owes men who have traded in this God for the common stuff of the world, to worship our own selves even? What does God owe man who has thrown away his law and gone against our own God-given consciences? What does God owe man who has fallen short of his glory? We don't deserve salvation at all, but we deserve God's wrath. Now, when you understand that we all deserve God's wrath for rebelling against the one and only Creator, we wanted to live out from underneath his rule and so chose our own rule to live under. Then all of a sudden, we are amazed that God, even in our sin, would pursue us in love with the intention to bestow upon us love in Jesus Christ. That he would move, that, the, that Jesus Christ, the Son, the eternal Son, would step down from his throne of glory to take on the form of man to die in my place. Where God knew that the, that, the, uh, that the expectations of the law, the requirements of the law, was absolute righteousness. And yet God chooses, even though I sin, He chooses to send His righteous Son to live the life I couldn't. And where I was supposed to die, embracing His wrath or feeling the wrath of God, He lays it all on Christ. So that I and everyone who repents of their sins and believes on Him would be saved, justified, forgiven, adopted, brought into his family, 
before the throne of grace, have access into this grace, into eternity, a relationship with God. We look at those things and we should think, wow, praise God we have received mercy. Friends, is that where your heart is today in relation to this election? Again, I'm not saying we should never ask questions. Asking questions is great. It could be a great way to know our sovereign God as he has revealed himself in the word. But as we ask our questions, even is there injustice with God in election? We have to guard our hearts in a way that always desires to want to submit to God and his word. Even where we know that there are some things that because of our lack of understanding or because of our confusion, because of our lack of knowledge, or simply because God is an infinite being and we will never fully understand him, right? We might not fully, exhaustively know God's purposes, but nevertheless, we ought to want to submit ourselves to the Lord, even though where we might not understand it at first, we can still trust God who is righteous and always good. One thing to point out before we conclude, again, is that some people get tripped up on God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Some people get tripped up on God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Some think that, hey, you know what, since God elects, you know, you and your doctrine of election, we don't therefore need to evangelize. Like, is that what you're saying? But friends, that's not what we're saying at all, right? That would not be a good biblical conclusion. And to that, I would say, as one of my friends has said, he said that God of Romans 9, that is the God who elects some and not others, is the same God as Romans 10. The God of Romans 10, you just turn over the page there, and you see this. He says there in verse 14, How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him on whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. That's a support of evangelism, right? He wants people to be evangelizing. That's Romans chapter 10, same God as Romans chapter 9, the God who elects. The way that I understand this is God appoints the ends, that is those who are saved. He also appoints the means, that is those who, the means is that we ought to go and evangelize. And through evangelizing, God draws people to himself. Of course we should be evangelizing, even with this understanding of election. Some others think, well, we only then need to preach to the elect of God. Is that what you're saying? Somehow we need to determine who the elect are, like maybe you're showing signs that you are the elect and we only preach to you. We only call you to repent and believe. Well, friends, that actually is not what we're saying here. That would be wrong as well. It's definitely not a category that Jesus had. So in Matthew chapter 11, who does he call all who are weary, burdened, heavy Heavy burden, I will give you rest for your souls. He doesn't say, only the elect, only the elect. He, calls, he throws out, he casts the net broad. Everybody, all who are weary and burdened, come. Reminds us of Isaiah where God says, come to me without money, without anything. And I will give you food and water for your soul. So we don't see that category in Jesus. We also don't see that category in the apostles in the book of Acts, for example. We don't see Peter standing up on the day of Pentecost saying, wait, we're only going to preach to the elect here. No, he just goes out and preaches the gospel to everyone. And then he entrusts the result to God, right? He says, everybody, repent of your sins and believe. So there, there is no scriptural warrant at all, no example in scripture of only preaching to the elect. Like that's just not a category people live in in scripture. And so I'm not going to live there. Again, we see election spoken of as encouragement, a dose of security, a dose of comfort in this idea that God has set his love upon his people. So we preach to all. This is why here in our Sunday service, we call everyone to repent of their sins and believe. And so if you are here today and visiting as a non-Christian, let me be clear, this call is for you. You cannot say, right, in Scripture, it's not a category to say, well, God hasn't elected me, therefore I don't need to repent and believe. No, that, that's sort of using God's sovereignty to excuse human responsibility. It doesn't exist in Scripture. We see here that God calls people to repent of their sins, and if you are here as a non-Christian, you too. But here's the deal. Thinking back to God's purposes. And let's be clear here, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord. But the things that he has revealed, I'm, we are responsible for, right? So there are secret things that belong to the Lord. Let's just be clear. 
So in relation to God's purposes, which are certainly multifaceted, remember this purpose. He says there in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Nope, that's not what I'm looking for. 13. Thinking about God's purpose, right? He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friends, you will know this mercy, undeserved mercy, all by God's grace, salvation in Jesus Christ, if you would turn from your sins and believe on him. You see, then God's face is not towards the repentant in anger, but in love, steadfast love, where he wants you to know him as your father who never rejects his people, but secures them in his love. So to conclude, God is always faithful to his promises. And therefore, we can trust him. We can trust him in his work of salvation, in saving, sanctifying, glorifying. We can trust him even in his electing. And as we turn to next week, we can trust him in his character of justice. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that you are a God of steadfast love. And so all these songs that we've sung of today, we rejoice knowing that, that you are sovereign in your grace. And because you are sovereign in your grace, we know, as we have sung earlier, that the Son has surely made us free. That he has released us from the bonds of slavery to sin. Because you are sovereign, powerful in your grace. We know that your word forever stands. And all our joy is knowing we are graven on Christ's wounded hands. We are graven on your wounded hands. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you will never let your people go. So, Lord, we ask that you would help us go to you and your word that you would help us even where our hearts are, find it hard to understand and hard to submit. Lord, we pray that you would help us submit. God, we ask that that attitude would go and go throughout all of our questions. Help us ask good questions and help us have the heart that desires to uplift your good grace and mercy in salvation. Lord Jesus Christ, we give you all the glory knowing that you are, in fact, our King who protects us and who saves us. In your name we pray. Amen.